No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Well, good, good evening and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. And tonight we've got uh, a special show. We're doing a show on candidates here in the District of Columbia, and some of the candidates that don't get the same kind of attention that some of the major candidates like uh, mayor, uh, people running for mayor get. So we wanted to have them on the air because we think they're important offices and uh, that we should give a forum uh, to people uh, that are running for these offices. And we start with my colleague, uh, Congressman uh, Owaliwa. Tell me, tell me, Oye, if I'm pronouncing your last. I don't know why I have a, a, a hard time with your last name, but I'm just going to call you Congressman Oye if that's all right. That works perfectly for me. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, and you're a great guy. You know, I've worked with you for two years now, and and you 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 just uh, put in a great effort, and you you know you're uh, you're smart and you're uh, determined, and uh, you're a really cool guy. You drive a Porsche, you're well-dressed, you're handsome, you're everything that a politician should be. Why are you running for this? Why are you running for this office again? Well, it doesn't pay, it gets little respect, uh, but you've done a good job. Why are you running for re-election? Well, ever since I got into the fight for D.C. statehood, it really began a passion for me to seek equality and representation. Going back to my days in pharmacy school where I graduated as the only black male in the 150-person class, I felt invisible. I felt like people don't see me. And upon my life in Washington, D.C., knowing that we don't vote for our judges, knowing that when other Congress members from all across this country run ads, they always say D.C. is broken. It's like the 700,000 Americans living in the district are invisible. So that really got me into thinking about not only what statehood means for us living in the nation's capital, but also how we can impact all others across the country once we get statehood. And once, you know, Senator Brown, you're able to make these progressive votes for legislation that we all really want. So that really motivates me and pushes me beyond the immediate needs like money and fame and things like that, really doing the, the hard work and following the footsteps of you. Oh, well, that's nice of you to say. And, and I can just say that, yeah, it, it, it must be tough. And for our listeners that don't know, Dr. Oye is a pharmacist in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm sure you've been a little busy 
over the last two years. Have you not, Doc? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as a pharmacist, I mean, we are the ground zero for healthcare. You know, when other hospitals were closed down and clinics were boarded up, us pharmacists in the retail setting had to pick up the mantle, whether it's medications, whether it's vaccines, whether it's keeping up to date with the ever-so-changing guidelines. You know, we were ground zero. But it also created an opportunity of me being able to be involved in healthcare policy and be on the ground level of it as well. I mean, we were able to vaccinate over 5,000 people immediately with these hands. And we were also able to open up vaccine access to D.C. residents outside the district in the middle of the shortage. So while folks talk about what we can and cannot do as representatives of D.C., I was able to use the platform that we were voted into having to really bring tangible goods for D.C. residents. So it's, it's been an opportunity that we were able to make the most out of. Well, that's really the office, isn't it? It's uh, more than anything, the office is a, a bully pulpit. It's a platform. And you got to figure out uh, ways to use it. Uh, I know your opponent. Uh, she's a member of the state committee. Uh, I'm not sure that I've ever seen her at a statehood event. But uh, there's a steep learning curve here, is there not? I mean, uh, it, it's really because what you can do in your particular office is whatever you can do. I mean, it's, there's no outline, there's no precedent, there's no uh, official this or that. So you've got to make something, you really got to figure out a way to make a silk, pure, pure, a silk purse out of a sow's ear, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, in this role, there's no training guide, there's no here-to book. But what really allowed me to find my comfort and my niche was by learning from, you know, the strategies from, from you, Senator Brown. You know, that fact that you have a way to communicate with thousands, if not all of D.C. and beyond, inspired me to create a newsletter, inspired me to gain a coalition, inspired me to use the fact that we may not have the most funding from the government, but parlay that into strategic partnerships so we can really get things done. And I'm really proud of my record. And... I wouldn't be here literally without, you know, the framework that you provide, Senator Brown. And, you know, it's it's really important that folks who are in this position to make their own value because nobody else is going to create the value for us. We don't have the rubber stamping power that th people think we should have, and I believe we should have. So we had to get more creative to get things done. Yeah, I think that, and I think that's true. And before I let Marilia, you know, before I put Marilia to sleep. And, I, and she gets to ask a question. Let me just say that for those of you that may not know this, our progress has been that we've passed the statehood bill in the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, that puts us um, in some ways closer to statehood than we've ever been before. It's now in the Senate. But in the House of Representatives, it got passed. So that's quite a, that's quite a record of accomplishment. So, Marilia, do you have a, a question for the doc? Yeah, just to say, finally, we have a scientist in politics with a refreshingly <laughs> refined perspective on policy. And I know, having been a scientist, I know that pharmacy is a tough degree. Um, and so I really admire what you do. And I also 
went from science to politics, not elected politics, but I, I was um, I worked in two administrations and it was a hard shift because it's a totally different um, set of thinking. It's a totally different cognition. So um, I admire you for making that transition and making it so beautifully. And um, I wonder what about politics can we change through science? What is your view on that? That's a great question. And oftentimes people who are STEM careers, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, mm -hmm. they go home and they go to work and they go home. And what we realize and a consequence of that is a lot of our healthcare policy are voted in and created by folks who have no experience in healthcare, at least providing it. So one thing I was able to do in my office is to create a healthcare providers and policy program where we introduce these legislation to healthcare professionals in DC and get them more activated on it. Now, in terms of the work that scientists can do and get more policy and, and get more legislative base, it's to really take, pay attention to how things are implemented. Oftentimes, you know, we are one track minded and we don't really pay attention to these issues, but these things really make a difference in people's lives. Whether it's healthcare access, whether it's drug pricing, whether it's hospitals being built in Southeast Washington, DC, we have a say in this too. And I'm very proud of the fact that I've been able to activate a lot more STEM professionals to really get involved in local matters. Yeah, that's an amazing thing to me that you can have a degree in sociology and get elected to the Congress of the United States and all of a sudden have to be making uh, decisions on things like health policy. You know, uh, I got through I got through biology 101 by crying in front of the professor <laughs> who, who gave me a D because he felt sorry for me. Uh, you know, and, and imagine if I could ever get elected to Congress, somebody might ask me, uh, uh, you know, to make a critical decision on, a, on, on, on some uh, health care policy, which would be just crazy to me. Um, really, any more scientific questions? Any more? Uh, Not more? scientific per se, but I, I guess I was going to ask you, what is the sort of couple of things that you experienced during the pandemic as a frontline healthcare um, professional that would inform healthcare policy yeah, in, in this nation? Oh, that's a great question. And something that I feel very strongly about is universal healthcare. I believe healthcare is a human right, but right now in the United States, that's not the case. During the pandemic, Regardless of your age, your race, your background, your citizenship status, or even your healthcare status, you were able to get a free COVID shot as long as you fit the criteria. And the reduced barriers allowed us to achieve our current rate of over 60%. Had we not reduced those barriers and made the vaccine a charged item, we would have had a lot fewer people get vaccinated and it would put us in a worse position. DC is open because people had access to the vaccine. And the reason why I bring this up is that if universal healthcare could work during the pandemic, I believe it could work during normal times. In addition, being a pharmacist during the pandemic, 
you realized how important each role was. Oftentimes, the pharmacy profession is kind of in the shadows. People are concerned about medical doctors, nurses, dentists, what have you. But the pharmacy profession was really put in a microscope, and it was really spotlighted during the time when no other healthcare profession was activated. So one thing I really want to do is get more pharmacists in particular more involved in policy, not only to run for office, but when we have Senator Brown in Congress and able to make votes that he may have a pharmacist or two that can be in office, that can work in his office, or be, be an advisor that can help guide us to make the right decisions. And not that everyone has to have a certain role in Congress, but I feel like everybody should be able to have a say. And that's what we're fighting for in D.C. We're fighting for representation. So everyone, regardless of their careers, can have a say in what's going on in our national policy. Um. Morelia got to ask two great questions. Now you understand why we why I have her on the show. I'm kind of the color commentator. She's uh, she's the the brains of the outfit. Um, but you know, what what in this experience over the past two years, uh, Representative, have has surprised you? What's the one thing that you didn't think would happen what or what's the best thing that's happened can you tell us that yes one thing i notice especially when i go to underserved communities whether it's in dc or the dish or outside the district is the clean slate that off we often have you know we don't have a lot of baggage in this office so we're really able to recreate or even create our own partnerships or organizations. For example, when I went to West Virginia to lobby folks to pass the um, some Voting Rights Act, I was able to also talk about DC statehood. I was also able to go to conservative news stations and reach across the aisle and talk to other people about why DC statehood matters. That if you're in West Virginia and your water quality is below your expectations, knowing that we have people in DC who are ready to vote infrastructure change to improve their lives, that when people care about environmental justice, when people care about racial justice, that they have people in D.C. that's willing to support those issues. Um, that's been something that energizes me. It's been something to realize. It's, it's energizing me to know that I have a place in this fight and also be able to make my own mark. Um, I've been really inspired by the previous representatives and the current senators I serve with but just the ability to continue every day to wake up knowing that I'm in full control over the work that I can do is really liberating. And it's something that I don't take for granted. Well, that's great. And, you know, I will say that you were brave enough to go to West Virginia uh, <laughs> where, you know, where we have that, uh, where I call, I call Senator Manchin a Dino a Democrat in name only, you know, he, 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 he acts like a Republican, but, but uh, calls himself a Democrat. And, and, you know, that's an important, that was an important move on your part. Let me just say that because we need Manchin on the bill. We need West Virginia on the bill and we have Maryland and Virginia. 
We have the senators from Maryland. We have the senators from Virginia, uh, the Democrats. And uh, it's amazing that we don't have the, the Democrat from West Virginia. So that was a smart move and a brave move. And, and uh, we're, often, we're all glad that you did it. Marilia, since you're asking all the great questions and we only have a couple minutes left with uh, uh, the representative, go ahead, ask another great question. This, this is sort of a comment that leads to a question. I just want to say, Oye, that you have a great mind. You're very articulate and you have superlative experience and a very unique background that can enlighten D.C. politics and our legislators, most importantly. But most of all, I think you are not self-focused, which I dare say is a function of your having roots outside of this country, African roots in particular. And I think also your science background allows that and fosters it. So I think I would love to see you um, win in November. Um, and along those lines, your efforts on STEM are very, very important. I know the Smithsonian programs are very keen on that lately. And education is very important, notably in words two and three, where it's really easy to send your child to private schools and get the best education where wards like seven and eight can't afford it. We can't continue with this educational divide. You have the graduates from wards two and three as being those who end up being members of society with a voice, whether as citizens are making policy decisions. So I applaud you for your efforts in that regard. Well, I think, first of all, let me just add to that. I think Marulia just gave you uh, a lot of good reasons to vote uh, to reelect this man. And I want to say now on the air, uh, Oye, uh, that you have my endorsement and, uh, you know, I'll do what I can to help you to win because I think you've done a good job. And Marilla, what Marilla just said is absolutely true. Uh, so uh, we only have a couple minutes left here. Do you have some final comment that you'd like to make? And I will help too. Absolutely. And I, and I really appreciate your words. I really also appreciate your continued support, encouragement, and partnership and endorsement. This race in this seat has never been about me. It's been about we. And when I was running for office originally in 2020, I was thinking about the 700,000 Americans living in a district without voting representation. But as I got closer and closer to the, the election day, I started thinking about all the Nigerians, all the West Africans, children of immigrants, um, LGBTQ plus people, folks who come from all different backgrounds in this country that don't see themselves in Congress. And this seat belongs to them because once DC becomes a state, we will pass laws that support racial justice, environmental justice, real action to climate change. Things that DC thought leaders already excel at will be what we can provide to this country. So when I go to other states and talk about DC state, it's not just about what it means to 700,000 Americans. It's about what it means to 300 plus million Americans, because these are the type of things that we can do once we complete our democracy by becoming a, a state. Now, in terms of me, you can find out more information about me on repoyedc.com, R-E-P-O-Y-E-D-C.com. I also have a bi-weekly newsletter so you can keep up with what's going on in our office. But most importantly, pay attention to the work that's done in this office. Pay attention to the work that's done in Senator Brown's office because the work being done here 
is the groundwork and the foundation of what's going to make D.C. a state. The fact that it passed the House, the fact that we have 46 senators supporting D.C. statehood, the fact that we have a president that supports D.C. statehood, this doesn't get done without the work in this office and all the activity, the increased activity of D.C. residents. So it's not about me. It's about we. And together we're going to make this happen. Well, that's a great way to end. And I encourage everybody to vote for this man. He's done a great job. And, and we really need him in this position to continue his important work. So thanks for being with us today. And uh, everybody go out and vote. And let's vote for Oye. Uh, thanks, Oye. Thank you so much. We, we, we have our second guest, on. Really, you want to introduce him? Sure. Are we ready? We're ready. Um, <clears throat> so I met Sala virtually through the um, Metropolitan Police Department's uh, Community Engagement um, Academy. And from that, I know Sala to be a, a very upstanding citizen, but someone with passion and enthusiasm for people and for this great city of ours. Um, and this is the program that Chief Conti asked me to plug last week, so I'm plugging it. <laughs> Anyway, Sala, I will let you speak to your accomplishments because they are many, but um, I applaud you for your work as a police officer and the accomplishments that I think you uh, better speak to because you'll be better than, than I ever would. And, and thank you for being on. And let me just add to that, that if you don't know, uh, Sala Kasperi is running in Ward 1 to be the council member and he's been endorsed by the Washington Post. So welcome to the show, uh, Sala. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Well, you know, I find you to be such an interesting candidate. And, uh, you know, as Marilia said, Marilia talk, said wonderful things about you uh, in the program that she was involved in. And the chief last week. Uh, you know, uh, we had we had uh, the chief of police on, and I know that you're very well respected. And the Washington Post endorsed you against a three-term incumbent. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, it's it's exciting. Um, it's a little overwhelming, but um, you know, I I think what it indicates is that our our message is is resonating. Um, every day, I'm out walking Ward 1, meeting neighbors, uh, hopping on phone calls. And, you know, people are concerned about, um, you know, declining quality of life and they want solutions and answers. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, when elected, I can help, you know, bring together some coalitions so we can address rising violence, so we can address rising um, inequality, um, but also the quality of life issues that e everyone deals with, trash and rats and those type of uh, hyper-localized things. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's important. And given uh, that, I want to get your input on something that was in the Washington Post today about the plaza in Adams Morgan, which was the site of the former Knickerbocker Theater where 98 people uh, pa perished in what might be the worst single disaster we ever had in the District of Columbia when the roof collapsed during a snowstorm and, and killed all those people. That's been a centerpiece in Adams Morgan. It's now fenced off 
owned by Truist Bank, I believe. And uh, there's a lot of controversy in the neighborhood about what should be done with that. What What do you think should be done? Yes, so I'm, I'm, I actually live in Adams Morgan myself. And, you know, I think there's kind of these two um, competing ideas. One, that, well, it's, you know, been private property, even if there was a public easement, and so we want to develop it into either housing or something else. And then another, uh, uh, another side that says, well, you know, it's been used as public space. Why doesn't the city buy it? redevelop it. It could be a library. It could be a plaza. It could be many, different, be many different things. And I think that's the sense that I'm getting. What I think we have an opportunity to do whenever there's a, a space that, um, you know, is currently undeveloped and maybe being used by the public, even if it's private, um, is an opportunity for us to find some level of compromise. I think we need to have a balanced approach that, you know, yes, we, we, we do want to develop spaces. We want to build more housing, especially as we have an affordability crisis. But it doesn't necessarily have to be either or. I think, you know, one thing that I've heard from neighbors is that there is a a desire to maintain some type of uh, uh, public use. And, you know, I think we could we can bring people to the table and get a little creative, whether that's, you know, including two levels of public space, whether that's having the building be, uh, you know, open on the first floor. So there is some type of plaza, even the, you know, some neighbors I've spoken to, they say, like, well, all we really want is, you know, Adams Morgan doesn't have its name anywhere. And Adams, the name Adams Morgan is, a, is a, a, a reflection of when the schools were integrated. And so I could also see us advocating that we work with whoever's developing the land to ensure that um, Adams Morgan is displayed prominently in some type of historic a- exhibition. So I say all that to say that, you know, there's not one solution. Um, you know, I think right now, while... Um, you know, the, the, the case is being decided and a, a determination is made. Um, you know, we should continue to allow the plaza to be used by the public, at least until it becomes an active construction zone. Um, and, you know, my hope is when elected that I can advocate proactively um, when there's these type of uh, community disputes over the use of land. Well, you know, I just want to add to that that I live in Ward 3, and um, Marilia lives in uh, Ward 2, and I'm sure we, she knows where the plaza is. I certainly am very familiar with it. I think every mm-hmm. Washingtonian is familiar with it, and it really is a landmark. And, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, so I appreciate your approach, and I think you're right. I think we need to decide a way to use it that satisfies everybody. Brilliant. So, Sala, um, I'm wondering as, if you can tell us as a former police officer, officer and being on the beat and, and interacting with, with the people of the city, what have you witnessed? What about your unique experience that allows you to be set apart from your opponent who's already been sitting in that seat for three terms? Yeah, definitely. Um, and first, you know, it's so good to, to hear your voice again. <laughs> Um, from our days back at the Community Engagement Academy. But, you know, I think, you know, I had the opportunity to be a police officer in in Ward 1. I was actually assigned to 750 Park Road, um, Mm -hmm. the 4th District substation. Um, I did all of my uh, field training there. I patrolled there. And, I, you know, when I was an officer, I got a firsthand um, uh, glimpse of the toll violence takes on our community. 
But I was lucky that I had the opportunity to move down to headquarters and run volunteer programs, um, our reserve corps, our domestic violence liaison program. And what I learned down there um, running outreach and volunteer programs was that there are a lot of people in our city who are passionate about being part of the solution, that they want to build safer communities, that they want to lend their experience and, and skill um, to being part of the solution. And, you know, I think right now that on the top of many people's minds, at least from my perspective, talking to people, um, crime and rising violence is a major concern. Just last night on U Street, we had a shooting and two stabbings. Um, and people want to not only uh, feel safe, they want to be safe. And I think what I can bring to the discussion, because I often in my role at MPD was at the meeting point of what the community wanted and also the realities that officers face, what I can bring to the table is not only the inside information about how our specific 911 system works and how our police department works and, and yes, how we have to reform it and, and uh, increase uh, the level of service we can provide. But also um, what I'd like to do is bring people to the table to address community concerns about security and safety together. And, you know, a, an example of that was I hosted a, a public safety forum a few weeks ago, and, and, and that was a reflection of the relationships I've built through my career. Um, and I don't think we're getting that right now. Um, you know, our, the, uh, my opponent hosted a, a public safety forum but did not invite the, the police to attend. And I think at the very minimum, the role of a council member of elected representative is to bring stakeholders to the table and form those relationships. I think they should join or, or uh, sign up for the Community Engagement Academy. I think that should be a requirement for all council members. I, I agree. I think the Community Engagement Academy, and I'll give a little plug, even though I'm not an MPD anymore, is a, is a great opportunity for people to get an inside um, kind of inside perspective on our police department, because there's 8,000 uh, police departments across the country, and they're not all the same. Ours is quite unique. They, you know, in D.C., we are a state police, uh, a state police department. We're a a county sheriff, a local police department, and we lead the presidential motorcade. So we are quite a, a, not only a unique city, but also a unique police department. Indeed. And, let, you know, let me just say, uh, solid that I think cop, D.C. cops are good cops. I think in the whole, you know, on the whole, and this comes from a guy that was beat up by the D.C. police and actually took a police officer uh, to task and tried to have him removed. Uh, I know there are bad cops out there, but in general, in years of dealing with the D.C. police, I think they're really an exceptional force. And and since we're on the subject, uh, let me just say that this has become a very divisive issue in in washington it seems you want more cops the mayor wants more cops the city council doesn't want more cops uh and you wrote an article in which uh you explained the 15 million dollars that was cut from the police budget was supposed to be used uh to provide other help uh for people other you know other professionals that could step in and maybe take the place uh of the police where there were wasn't any violence or you know uh um where they could actually uh work hand in hand with the police but they really haven't done that and that's created a void and it's made it even harder for police officers so 
Putting more cops on the street is always a great idea in a political year because it makes people feel safe. But but tell us what you think. Why do we need more cops? Yeah, you know, I think we have to continue hiring police officers because when the council voted in June 2020 to cut the MPD hiring budget, what resulted over a course of a year of not hiring was a 280 officer and detective reduction in the force. And I can't point to 280 mental health professionals or addiction counselors or other professionals that are out in the 911 network responding to crisis. And I am 100% in favor of that. I used to run our domestic violence liaison program at the police department. In that program, we trained um, civilian volunteers with DC Safe and MPD, and um, they would ride with police officers. And on scenes of domestic violence, they would refer victims to service. And the reason we did that is we recognized that you can be the nicest officer ever, but sometimes that uniform is a barrier. And it's it, there is a productivity that comes with having someone who's specially trained to refer a victim to a service, and we see an exponential increase in the likelihood of someone actually um, taking that service. So if we can do it with volunteers, we certainly can do it with paid individuals. You know, I think that is, um, you know, while we are hiring police officers, we have to be building out these alternative mechanisms um, because once we do that, we'll be able to assess how many police officers do we actually need. Um, you know, if we start chipping away at the 911 calls and sending, um, you know, mental health professionals to certain calls or crisis counselors to certain calls, it, we may see that we might need more police, we might need less police, but we won't actually know until we have the data. Um, and, you know, having been on the front lines, um, so to say, uh, you know, I, there's plenty of room for innovation. I always tell people the story of being a police officer and getting a 911 call at a nail salon. And uh, the customer was irate that uh, the nail salon didn't offer a half gel service or, or some type of service like that. And so I walked in, I said, you know, this is really not a police manner, but let me see, uh, let me see how I can help. And I um, you know, pulled out my phone, found another nail salon, you know, made a few phone calls, helped, helped her on her way, de-escalated the situation. But we really have to ask ourselves, like, in this time of heightened violence, do we really want the police going to these types of calls for two reasons? One, we need them focused on violent crime and patrolling. And two, any interaction with a police officer involves at least one uh, weapon, the officers, and we know that changes the dynamics of the situation. And so there's an opportunity here um, to, to innovate, and other cities are doing it. There's no reason we can't do it right here as well. I agree. Uh, how about guns, uh, officer? As an officer, what can we do about guns? Isn't guns, aren't guns our real real problem, and not only in D.C., but but everywhere. This thing we saw in Buffalo, how does an 18-year-old kid get his hands on an AR-15 rifle? Do What can we do about guns in the District of Columbia? Any idea? Yeah, certainly. You know, you know unfortunately, because, uh, you know, anything to restrict the, the, the uh, flow of illegal firearms to D.C. would require a united federal strategy. I, you know, I think we have to look at how do we prevent people from ever wanting to have an illegal firearm. Um, since until we can work with our neighboring states and the federal government to have a united gun control policy, I think the flow will continue, or at least the access. And so uh, in our city, we've seen that MPD um, this year, year to date, has recovered 54% more illegal firearms than they did last year. Uh, we've seen 18% more people shot uh, year to date. 
Um, and last year, in uh, 2021, we had nearly 1,000 people shot, um, over 200 homicides, most of them with, um, with guns. And so what we have to look at is uh, right now, how do we ensure that we're holding violent offenders accountable? We see that the average homicide suspect has been arrested 11 prior times. So that indicates to me that for one reason or another, cases are not being um, prosecuted. And that sometimes requires us to, to beef up investigations, so we're building stronger cases. There's also an element of making sure we're getting DNA evidence uh, uh, through in, in a timely fashion. And there's also going to be a, a piece where we're revising some of the criminal code to make sure we're not diverting um, individuals on based on age or other factors that really shouldn't be diverted um, because they've uh, harmed people um, with violence in the community. At the same time, we also saw this study that came out roughly two months ago that said there are 500 identifiable people in our city that are responsible for 70% of the gun violence. So while we're, wow. while we're trying to beef up investigations and ensure the police have the resources they need to, to bring strong cases to prosecutors, and while we're looking at what revisions do we need to make to the criminal code to ensure we close any loopholes, in the meantime, we spend 30% of our city's budget, which is roughly $5 billion, on human support services. We should be infusing those those support services into these 500 people's lives because at the end of the day, not everyone's going to be programmed out of violence, let's say. But if we can catch people up on, on, on job training, get them a license, a bank account, help remove barriers for them so they can enter productive life, that's also going to get us to the same state as a successful prosecution where it's one less person shooting indiscriminately in the street, putting all of us at risk. Yeah. It's scary. You know, I've raised children, three children, and one of them was a boy, and it's scary for me to think of teenagers with guns. It, it really is. Uh, you know, uh, as a dad, um, I used to, when my son was a teenager, I could tell him to take out the trash 14 times a day, and he would still forget. And this is not a guy I want to see walking around the streets of D.C. carrying a gun. So, uh yeah, whatever we can do to keep them off the street would be great. Uh, Morelia, we're starting to run out of time. You want to ask another question? Can't hear you, Morelia. I think you're muted. Okay. A lot of questions for Sala, but I know we have limited time. I'm, I'm curious, Sala, speaking of the violence and everything else, and of course, violence is a very complicated issue. It's got poverty behind it. It's got education behind it, which is a whole nother ball of wax. But how do you see, and, and I ask you this because I, I think I, I said it to Chief Conti last week, the thing that really struck me the most uh, amongst many things was the, um, the shot spotters and how it showed that most of the shots in, in real time we can see are happening in wards seven and eight. And I think there is a real divide between the wards in this city, and I think it's it's important to 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 bridge this this chasm, to, to bridge this gulf. And I'm wondering if you have how we can tear down um, the walls between the, the, the sort of you know, better up wards and the, the less advantaged wards. Yes, certainly. You know, I, I think DC in many ways is a tale of two two cities. And so often the inequity uh, that we, we, the, the inequity we face cuts along um, racial lines. 
Um, and uh, Ward 7 and 8, they uh, uh, take the brunt of violent crime, unfortunately. And uh, even though I'm running to represent Ward 1, I think what's important to recognize is that the problems we ignore in other communities will one day come um, um, to our doorstep. And so if we want to build a safer and more equitable city, we have to make sure we're just as concerned about violence in Ward 7 and 8. We're just as concerned as uh, the quality of education in Ward 7 and 8 and elsewhere in the city. We have to make sure that if there are two deserts that are uh, existing in our city, that we're addressing them. Because violent crime is not uh, random. There are upstream failures that have caused someone to eventually come to a point where they're willing to pick up an illegal firearm and shoot it at another human being. So we have to address those, those upstream failures, and we have to um, uh, be intentional about our investments to broaden the foundations um, of our current systems. Because if we really want to see the sustained downward trend of violent crime, we have to make sure that everyone in our city has a, has a, a quality education, access to a quality education, and that quality education lead, leads to gainful employment. Indeed, well, it does. Uh, and Marilia, we've got time for one more question, and you're the good question asker, so go. go, go, go. You're too kind. So along those lines, what are your views on prison reform, please? Yes, certainly. You know, I think because D.C. is not a state, we don't control our prison um, system. After right. someone's being held for more than a year, they're remanded into the custody of the Federal Bureau of uh, Prisons, and we have to address this for many reasons. One, um, if, if people are, are, our citizens are being sent to complete their prison sentences far away, they're losing yes. access to their community and their network. Um, and so I would advocate that uh, we work with the Federal Bureau of Prisons to ensure that our um, uh, D.C. residents who are serving time uh, do that locally. But uh, in the long term, you know, we across the board, our criminal justice system needs reform. And across mm -hmm. the board, we all agree that we want our system to reform people so they can enter productive life again. And because mm -hmm. we don't control our prison system, we're limited in the scope of our ability to reform it. And so I think this is where the yeah. nexus of statehood comes, because until we have control over our prisons, um, we won't be able to get the outcomes we want where we're actually advocating um, for a, a reform in the prisons that puts us on track to make sure that everyone who, who serves their time re-enters society as a, um, as a productive member of society who has opportunities to get uh, gainful employment, has opportunities to have been caught up on education and other opportunities they may have missed. And again, we can do that a little bit on the front end and on, on the back end with our uh, returning citizens program. But if we don't have control over that period of time where they're actually serving their sentence, um, you know, we're, we're limited. Well, on that note, we're going to end. And it's a perfect note to end because uh, I agree as a statement uh, advocate, Salah, that, that that's exactly what we need to do. So let me tell you, if you're out there in Ward 1 and you're listening, this is a great guy to vote for. Uh, everything I've heard about you, Sally, is 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 positive. Uh, and after having you on our show, I think that uh, you're the, exactly the kind of person that we need on the city council. So I wish you all the best of luck. 
Marilli and I, unfortunately, live in Ward 3 and, and Ward 2, so we can't vote any, for you. But I'm going to tell all my friends in Ward 1 to vote for you. So thank you. Yeah, and thanks for being on the show. And we hope to, you know what? I hope to have you back uh, when you win so you can tell us what the experience was like, okay? Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it. It's been an honor, and I can't wait to join you again after June 21st. Good. Let's go. Get Absolutely. it done, Sala. Thank you so your, much. Your mind. So now we have our third and maybe most interesting candidate of the day, uh, Henry Cohen. Henry is a high school student who goes to Jackson Reed High School, the new Jackson Reed High School. It was Wilson High School. All three of my children graduated from Wilson High School. And Henry is a 12th grader who's 18 years old and is running for the city council Ward three, along with everybody else in Washington. There's nine candidates in this race. Henry, are you with us? Yes, I am. Well, that's great. Tell us why you're doing this. It's not the average thing that uh, a high school kid does. Uh, you know, yeah. m many of us were worried about what the next step for us was going to be. And I know you're thinking about it, too. I understand that you've chosen a few colleges, VCU, Minnesota, and Pitt, which you're applying to. So, so why throw this wrench into the middle of all those plans? Yeah, so a lot of this campaign has been about awareness as opposed to just um, running for council. And originally, this was uh, this was a campaign that started to um, make people aware of some of the, just some of the issues that we were facing at our school, which um, you know things like leaky roofs or uh, you know uh, sinks that don't work, bathrooms that are completely dysfunctional. And so for a lot of people who have been interested in this campa campaign, and for myself as well, it's really been about um, trying to make, you know, a better school, not just from, you know, like being on the council, but from the process of running it. And that said, it has been a really enjoyable experience to run this campaign. Um, and I feel like I'm learning a lot, and I'm happy to be, uh, you know, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be sharing my opinions with everybody here today. Well, you know what, Henry, I think it probably is a really good uh, experience. I've always felt running for office was a great experience. And, and I think for somebody your age, it's, it's really uh, got to be interesting and, and an exciting experience. But it must be hard to work it in while still trying to finish school and, and, and move on to college. Um, uh, but I admire you for doing it. And we can't even get started on the problems at Wilson High School in terms of bathrooms and ceiling. You're in the new Wilson High School. My three kids went through the old Wilson High School. I could go on for a month about all the problems that there were at, at Wilson High School. So uh, it, it's great that you're bringing uh, um, that to people's attention. And I know that there are 8,500 War three registered voters between the ages of 18 and 24, they seem to be your target group. Uh, are you doing things to try to get them out and try to get them to vote? Yeah. So, um, you know, for a lot of people my age, you know, even people older than me, college students, um, a lot of times politics are just, you know, something boring that uh, old people do and that our parents are interested in. Um, <laughs> but it, I think that having somebody running, you know, even if I don't win, which, you know, maybe I won't, 
But just having somebody running is, you know, it shows people that, like, yeah, we can make a difference. And, you know, um, people, uh, you know, people have been coming up to me, you know, asking how they can get involved, asking if they can register to vote, things like that. And it's really been amazing to see that level of support. Um, you know, we've been making extensive use of social media and things like that to make that happen. Great. Uh, have you become more popular in school as the <laughs> candidate? Are you uh, are you getting lots of uh, invitations to the prom? Um, how's that going? A lot of people are really interested in, in it. Um, you know, people coming up asking me, like, hey, you're that guy who's running for mayor or something? Um, and it's really enjoyable to meet a lot of people. Um, I like talking to people, as you kind of have to be to be in politics. Um, so it's been really nice to, you know, have people come up and get to talk to new people every day. Um, yeah. I can't say that I've gotten, you know, any dates to prom out of it, but yeah. Well, keep working <laughs> at it. Keep working <laughs> it. You never know. Marilia, yeah. do you have a question? Yes. Hi, Henry. I'm glad you're running. I'm glad you, you're, you're, you're serving as a great example. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what about your background, your parents, the way you were raised has um, uh, led to this uh, decision of yours to run at, at such an early age? Yeah. So, um, you know, my parents have been a really big inspiration. My mom is a school social worker and my dad uh, is a staffer for um, one of your colleagues, Senator Brown, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Um, yeah. And love her. You know, growing up, we've always talked about politics a lot. Um, as, as you can imagine, I'm sure. Um, and it's been for me, something that I've found myself able to get really interested in and something that I feel like I, I can do. Um, and something that I feel like I have something to add to the conversation. Um, and so, you know, starting in 2016, I, uh, started volunteering for democratic campaigns. I, uh, I worked for Hillary in Pennsylvania, which, you know, didn't end well, but it was a good experience. Um, and I'm happy I got to go, uh, at least try to help her win. Um, and, you know, getting into 2018, I did some work for Democratic candidates in Virginia. And then in 2020, I was up in Pennsylvania, you know, almost every weekend knocking doors for Biden. Um, and then 2021, I did a uh, fellowship with uh, Jamie Raskin in the House of Representatives about, you know, how to be a younger organizer, how to um, be a politician, things like that. He's um, great. And I feel like it's really prepared me for this sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and Raskin is, you know, a dear, dear friend of the District of Columbia, somebody that's been on our show, uh, and, uh, you know, we have the utmost respect for him, for, uh, him and, and please give uh, my regards to your dad, because Elizabeth Warren is one of our favorite people. I have to tell you that when I went to the Iowa caucuses with my daughter, uh, who's, who's a little older than you are, uh, all she could talk about was Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren. And we got to the uh, um, caucuses and we got up on stage on with Elizabeth Warren and I turned around to introduce you to my daughter. And there was my daughter laying on the floor with Elizabeth's dog. She brought her, her golden retriever. So uh, evidently it was more important for Tricia to meet meet the golden retriever than it was to meet the 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 sent uh, the senator so uh hey i totally get it that golden retriever is cute well you know what i gotta tell you as somebody i can tell by talking to you henry that i've got good news and bad news for you 
uh, the good news is you're probably going to get elected to something important someday. The bad news is that you're probably going to be a campaigner your whole life because that, that, that's what I've been. And I can tell you that the uh, golden retriever that she had is was the perfect campaign prop. This dog, <laughs> I don't know if this dog had his own manager or what, but he came out like the perfect dog and he was beautiful and he just laid there like, you know, like a rug, like a dog should do. So anyway, <laughs> so it, it, it's great the work that both your parents do. And yeah. you know what, Henry, do. is there one last thing you want to say before we're off the air, Henry, we only have a few more minutes. Yeah, um, you know, I know that people are going to be a little bit more skeptical about voting for me and supporting me just, you know, because of my age. And, you know, I totally get it. But, um, you know, I really it's it's not about how old you are or, you know, what kind of specific experience you have in um, adult politics. It's really about um, your ideas. You know, everybody has different experiences. And my experience is going to high school with um, 40 other students in one of my classes or going in high school with leaky roofs or um you know, worrying for my friends being able to get to school because they bike and we don't have safe bike infrastructure. Um, and that's an experience that nobody else in this race really has as a potential student. And, um, you know, like I said, I know a lot of people are going to be skeptical about voting for me, but, you know, even if you're not, just give a listen to what I have to say. Uh, have you, uh, uh, first, let me ask you a quick question. What do you think about letting 16-year-old votes? Do you think uh, I'm that all for it. I, you do. You I have found 16-year-olds smarter than me um, asking how they can help the campaign. So all I have right. no reason well, to, let, to stop them. All right. Well, that's a good answer. Uh, let me just say for you folks out in Ward 3, uh, Henry, Henry is a, a real candidate. Uh, look into him. Do you have a website that people can go to, Henry? Uh, yeah, CohenforDC.com. Confordc.com. Look them up and give them every consideration. And Henry, it is my uh, opinion that someday I will be bragging to people uh, that I had you on my show and that I knew you when before you were uh, council member, or mayor, or governor, or, uh, senator, or whatever you're going to be in the future. Uh, I wish you all the best of luck. I think. Uh, when I talk to young people like you and I see that they're engaged and, and they care about this country and they care about the future, it gives me great hope. So thank you, uh, Henry, for giving me great hope. Uh, I wish you all the best of luck. And I'm a Ward 3 voter, so I'm going to look up that website and we'll see Please what do. happens. And, uh, also, if you have any questions, and this goes to anybody listening as well, my uh, phone number is 202-805-7132. Um, I'll try to get back as soon as I can. Okay. Thank you for that, Henry. And now we leave you as we always do. We leave you with a song dedicated to um, the people that have been on our show, our guests. And tonight's song is from the boss, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Born to Run. See you next week.